In this episode of the ASN Kidney News Podcast, ASN Director of Policy and Public Affairs Paul Smedberg interviews Rajiv Agarwal, MD, of the Indiana University School of Medicine, and Kathleen LeBeau, a Renal Support Network Program Manager. Dr. Agarwal is the co-author of a forthcoming CJSON study entitled Individualizing Decision-Making, Resurrecting the Doctor-Patient Relationship in the Anemia Debate. This podcast episode provides essential insights into the management of anemia from the perspective of both doctors and patients. Dr. Agarwal, thank you for being with us here today. And I guess my first question to you is, in your recent uh, C. Jason paper, you talk about the anemia paradox. Talk to us about that a little bit. The anemia paradox is very interesting. For years, we believed that by improving the hemoglobin level, we can reduce the mortality. And that's what we saw when we looked at USRDS or hemoglobin levels among patients who had chronic kidney disease who did not go on dialysis. Yet when we did the clinical trials, we found that if we targeted a higher hemoglobin, they had a higher mortality. And that's the paradox. The paradox is that when you're targeting a higher hemoglobin, there's an increase in mortality. But if you achieve a higher hemoglobin, there's an improvement in mortality. In fact, even within the clinical trials, if you had an improvement in hemoglobin, Within any strata, low or high, there was an improvement in mortality, and that is the paradox. There's been a lot of debate recently about the range or a target for hemoglobin. FDA recently, or two years ago, changed their label. Talk to us about this. The initial label that erythropoietin got was based on improvement in transfusion rates. In other words, if the patients who before erythropoietin was uh, introduced, were receiving a lot of transfusions. And uh, after the introduction of this drug, the transfusion rate dramatically fell. It was spectacular, both in clinical trials as well as within the uh, United States renal data system. It was quite evident. Then we basically thought that we could push the hemoglobin higher and we could even have an improvement in mortality. Of course, the trials did not show that. So if we started targeting to normal or near normal hemoglobin, that is a hemoglobin of 13 or more, we saw some poor outcomes, increase in thrombotic rates, increase in strokes, increase in cancer mortality, things like that, which is sort of uh, seen in both dialysis patients as well as patients who have not yet started dialysis. So what we know now is that some hemoglobin improvement is good, but if you target a normal hemoglobin, that's not the best thing for the patient. Yet, at an individual level, if you can achieve a higher hemoglobin, I'd say a very low dose of erythropoietin. That has never been shown to be associated with harm, not at least as I interpret the data. That's why it becomes very important to educate the patient of what this drug does, what they can, what benefit they can expect, and what harms that they might expect. And when it comes to 
targeting a particular hemoglobin level, it really has to be a conversation between the doctor and the patient where a certain target is decided based on what the patient would expect the benefit uh, from, not simply a number that we are shooting for, but some tangible benefit that the patient might experience. So, for instance, there was uh, at the MedCAC meeting, there was a very uh, interesting account of a lady who came up and said, my hemoglobin was 12.1, and my nurse practitioner came and reduced my erythropoietin dose by 50%, and for the subsequent four to six weeks, I really felt terrible. That dose of erythropoietin was quite low. The patient was feeling well. And here's a situation where the patient is going through ups and downs in the way they feel. That might be inappropriate simply because we are hitting a target. What I am advocating for is individualizing decision-making rather than making this a culinary uh, practice, a certain target, a certain recipe. Dr. Agarwal, why is it important to keep a person with kidney disease from avoiding a transfusion? Very important because transfusions uh, are dangerous in these patients. They get what is called panel reactive antibodies, which is production of antibodies to HLA and non-HLA antigens, which can make subsequent receipt of transplant difficult. Even when they receive a transplantation, the outcomes of transplantation as well as the patient outcomes are substantially worsened when they have these panel reactive antibodies. Because transplantation is such a life-saving and life-transforming procedure for dialysis patients, it's very important that we avoid transfusions in these patients who are particularly eligible for transplantation. And therefore, transfusions are very risky in these individuals. What is the relationship between the hemoglobin level and, say, the risk of transfusion? Is, or, or is there a relationship at all? There is a relationship, and that relationship is uh, quite spectacular. In fact, the data tell us, and these data mostly come from the United States Renal Data System, that if hemoglobin falls below 10, the odds of of, uh, transfusion jump dramatically. And in fact, hemoglobin, if it's targeted to, say, 9, the odds of transfusions are about uh, fourfold higher compared to a higher level of hemoglobin, for instance. And this has been borne by even the clinical trials, for example, the TREAT trial, which was targeting a hemoglobin more than 13 versus a placebo group where the patients only got treated when the hemoglobin dropped to less than 9. The hazard ratio for transfusion was uh, nearly twice as much in the patients who were in the rescue therapy arm which tells you that uh, this is a risky uh, proposition where the hemoglobin is uh, treated only when it falls to a pretty low number. If we adopt that practice, we might have more cross-sensitization, increased waiting time on transplant, poor outcomes in the long term if if we target a hemoglobin to a lower number. Dr. Agawal, in your work, have you noticed any difference between, say, male and female or different uh, ethnic groups as you look at uh, hemoglobin levels and uh, an individual's reaction to ESAs? 
Yes, so this uh, risk of transfusion, etc., probably will be borne disproportionately by women and uh, among African Americans, particularly because women are at high risk for two reasons. One, that uh, there are only three ways that you can generate panel reactive antibodies. One is by transplantation, prior transplantation, blood transfusion, and in women, prior pregnancies. So if a woman is pregnant and subsequently gets a transfusion, that is compounding the risk of having more panel reactive antibodies and perhaps disadvantaging them more than men who, who might uh, have less panel reactive antibodies. Blacks typically tend to require a higher dose of erythropoietin uh, for unknown reason. And if we start cutting back on the dose, uh, they might not have a higher hemoglobin and therefore get more transfusions uh, in the process. They're, they also have uh, peculiar uh, characteristics compared to Caucasians, for example, African Americans require a higher dose of immunosuppression, for instance, to maintain their kidney. And therefore, they are at higher risk of rejection, etc. And therefore, if you have panel reactive antibodies, they might actually do worse. I don't know of firm data that can I, I can conjure up offhand, but those are the two groups that might be particularly disadvantaged. In your paper and on the call today, you talk specifically about uh, pa- patient preference and you know individualizing therapy. How important is communication between the physician and the person with kidney disease and moving forward? I think it's probably the single most important thing that we can do. Of all the things that we do for our patients in nephrology, management of anemia is probably the single most important thing for improving their quality of life. And we don't have any therapy in nephrology that has prolonged life short of transplantation, for instance. What we do for our patients is not making them live longer, but making them live better. And if we tell our patients that you have this problem of anemia, and that's why you might not be feeling so well, but if I raise your hemoglobin, you have these certain risks, that's open communication because I think every patient recognizes that the therapy that they get is not without risk. Everything has a risk and a reward. And if they are totally apprised of this risk and reward uh, ratio, they can take a better decision what is good for them. For instance, one patient might feel that if he has more energy and he is on the golf course, and he has a stroke, that's an excellent quality of life compared to somebody who might just feel that he is not feeling too well, he's in bed most of the time, can't get out of bed to do his daily work, and life only seems longer even though he's protected from stroke. So we have to take those decisions at the bedside, and the patient preference really takes center stage here. In that context, you know, one of the dangers that we have seen, at least in one study, the TREAT trial, was that of strokes. In the QUAR trial, we saw that there was increased risk of heart failure hospitalizations. And both these risks are profoundly sensitive to increases in blood pressure. 
The good news is that if you can control blood pressure, you might mitigate the risk of these uh, events happening. I don't think that nephrologists are monitoring blood pressure closely enough among patients who are being initiated or being treated with erythropoietin. And if we started monitoring the blood pressure at home, that would be an additional step that they might be able to improve the safety of this drug while trying to improve the uh, quality of life of their patients. Ms. LeBeau, when did you find out you had kidney disease, and how and how did that happen? Well, I was diagnosed uh, in 2004 as a result of doing some pre-op blood work for gallbladder surgery, and all of my uh, electrolytes and markers of kidney function were considerably reduced, and it turned out that I had primary bone and mineral disease that calcified my kidneys. So when it was discovered, I was already at about 35% function, and... The good news of that is that I have three years to learn and become educated and find out everything about that I would need to know before I started needing treatment. That was good and bad. It's also difficult to know that you're heading in a direction uh, that you can't, you can slow down, you can slow the progression, but you can't avoid. So, so good and bad, but uh, that was how uh, I was uh, diagnosed. How long have you been on ESAs, or are you on ESAs? Well, I have been on ESAs periodically through the course of my kidney disease, both prior to starting dialysis and since I do home hemodialysis. I would say I'm probably a good responder in that term because um, I do fairly well and then can go long periods of time where as long as my iron levels are healthy and where they need to be in range, I can maintain a level of hemoglobin where, where it should be and where I feel good. And, you know, I really have to agree with Dr. Agwell. Patients define the quality of their care by how do I feel and how fully can I live my life. And now those are the things that are important. We fully understand that there are risks with every choice we make with our medical care. And it is important that we be a participant in the choices for our medical care because there are lives. So I, I can't reiterate how, how critical that is as we look at this issue especially because anemia coupled with the fatigue that can go with anemia and the fatigue that can go with pre-dialysis fluid load and dialysis itself can leave you feeling not much stamina for your life. So it's so important to keep your hemoglobin level at a place where you can really have some energy to do the things that are important and give you a meaningful life. So is it fair to say that ESAs have really changed your life? I mean, you're very, very active in renal support network, and you help a lot of people. Do you think you'd be able to do that if you weren't on ESAs? Absolutely not. I know, as I said, I was diagnosed six years ago, and I am very fortunate that the entirety of my kidney disease has been within the availability of ESAs. I do talk to a lot of patients all over the country all the time, and I know a lot of folks who have been dealing with this for 30 and 40 years who lived in the pre-ESA transfusion era, many of them are 90 or 100% sensitized, as Dr. Agarwal was explaining. I, I've had friends who've sat on waiting lists with very little hope of receiving a transplant, friends who have died on those waiting lists, friends who currently have really almost no hope of getting a transplant, largely due to having been exposed to transfusions. So I can't emphasize enough the difference that the availability of ESAs makes to uh, patients' lives. What's your view? You obviously interact with a lot of folks throughout the country. 
how is the level of communication, do you think, in general between, you know, a person with kidney disease and their physician? I think it varies with a couple of things. Uh, how open in, is the physician and the healthcare team to interacting and to putting those choices out before the patient? How informed and edu- educated the patient is in participating in their care? I think that can make a difference. Some folks are more receptive to information. Some folks are more hesitant to be proactive in their own care. They very much respect the clinical expertise of their healthcare team and their doctors, and, and certainly I respect that as well. But I think we know how we feel. For example, I know I can always tell when my hemoglobin is dipping. When I'm tired, more tired than usual, and I'm not getting done in the course of a day what I normally do, before I ever do a, a lab test, I know that my hemoglobin is dropping. I know it, and it's always confirmed because we know how we feel. And when you become tuned into that and you become informed about the things that impact that, um, you can be a good participant in your care. So, Kathy, you were an invited speaker for the recent uh, MedCAC meeting, which Dr. Agawald mentioned a few minutes ago. What was the takeaway for you at the end of the day? That's a great question. It, it was a fascinating process. I, I should say it's the first time I participated in that kind of a hearing. Patients and the patient perspective was very clearly wanted by the hearing group, but I do know that clinical evidence seemed to be what they were hanging uh, decisions and opinions on. It, it was a very interesting process to me. I, I think a lot of things came out. I was concerned, for example, there seemed to be a lot of conversation about moving the range down to nine, which that would have devastating consequences on on patients uh, if they were thinking about that. And there's no evidence that I'm aware of. I'm certainly not a clinical expert, but there's no evidence that would support that. So that was a big concern to me. Uh, Barry Straub, who opened the meeting, spoke about how they were trying to be proactive in making a, a national coverage determination about ESAs and anemia management, although that has, seems to have moved fairly quickly since the meeting. But I guess a couple concerns. It's, it's hard to explain to a, a group of folks who are not nephrology familiar how this all works. Kidney disease is a very complicated illness, certainly. So it seemed like it engendered a lot of conversation and warranted a lot more conversation before any decisions are made. Well, I thought you were a very effective speaker uh, that day, and I think you and the other representatives uh, there uh, who were representing, you know, patients, quote-unquote, did a, a really excellent job and, and I think really did help sort of influence some of the discussion that the panel had, uh, you know, moving forward. Dr. Argawal, I'm going to ask you the same question. What was your takeaway? You, too, served as a, actually as a guest panelist to the MedCAC that day, along with two other nephrologists. What was your takeaway? I came out of that meeting listening to the patients, and I thought that we need to go back and start talking to the patients. You know, there's a very nice lecture that uh, Abraham Borghese, who is at Stanford University, gives on. He gave it to ASN a couple of years ago. And he talks about we looking at our patients in the computer and we feel that the patient who's waiting in the office or at the bed is a virtual embodiment of the patient who exists on the computer. The other day, uh, my fellow presented me a patient and told me all about the lab history and past history. 
and the creatinine and the hemoglobin, everything. And after she was done, I asked her, what was the most important thing you did not tell me? And she was nonplussed. She couldn't answer me. And I said, you did not tell me how the patient felt what was the symptoms? The patients don't come and see you because they have, they don't come and tell you I have an elevated creatinine or I have a low hemoglobin. They come and tell you I have fatigue or I'm swollen. And we have to listen to that because ultimately what we do to our patients is relieve their symptoms. We are not prolonging their lives most of the times. And if we don't listen to them, we're going to be stuck with these meetings where we are trying to discover targets. We went to medical school to make complex decisions. We did not go to culinary schools to make some targets and a recipe. And that's what struck me, and that was the reason behind writing this paper on individualizing decision-making. And I think that people like Kathy, who exist in thousands out there, need to have a voice. And when they go to the doctor, they should complain about the symptoms and make sure that the doctor listens to them. As nephrologists, we should go more to the bedside, hold their hands, listen to our patients instead of simply looking at numbers. That was the impact that meeting had on me. Yeah, one of my takeaways was I thought the panel itself, the the is the official panel, if you will. I thought you and your colleagues, the three nephrologists serving as guest panelists, really did contribute an, an awful lot to the discussion that day. For me, that was one of the takeaways I had. In addition to um, Kathy and her colleague, who were representing people with kidney disease there that day. Your participation as a guest panelist and theirs as the patient representatives, if you will, really did have a a big impact. What about the questions from other panelists, uh, Kathy? What what did you think of that? I thought some of them were were very wonderful questions, but the thing that I have continued to think about for the four weeks since the meeting was the question asked by the ethicist, because this is a hard thing for patients to hear. She says, the question she asked was, wouldn't dialysis patients, and I'm paraphrasing here, so wouldn't dialysis patients be happy to be kept at about a nine hemoglobin if it was a pay-for for immunosuppressives for transplant recipients? Mm-hmm. And, and frankly, you know, my heart sinks when I hear things like that because it pits two groups of patients against each other you know, at the cost of one for the benefit of the other, when these are the same patients transitioning through, we're trying to keep people as healthy as we can on dialysis to get them to transplant. Or for folks for whom transplant may never be an option, you have to stay as healthy as you can on dialysis, and anemia management is a huge piece of that. There's a part of me that wanted to say, you know, have you ever tried a nine hemoglobin? I promise you, you won't like it. Uh, but, the you know, the cost savings have to be seen in, keeping patients healthier, less hospitalizations, less risk of infections. They feel better. They're more productive. They're able to enjoy life more. All of those are payoffs. Yet there were many other good, informed questions asked as well, but that is frankly the one that I'm still thinking about. Dr. Agarwal, what do you think about what Kathy just said? I think that Kathy makes an excellent point. You know, we we always kind of struggle with this question about hemoglobin and targeting hemoglobin. To me, a low hemoglobin is like a 911 call. You have to look and ask, why did the patient have that low hemoglobin? Because it's not all about EPO and iron. Uh, Many times it might be an infection, a catheter, a drug, and other 
hypothetical condition. Diabetic, yeah, medical condition, diabetic foot. That uh, is uncovered when you explore why the hemoglobin is low. When I look at the way anemia is managed now in dialysis units, it makes my heart sink because many times it is a target that they're driving, and if the hemoglobin is less than a certain number, there's an automatic increase in erythropoietin or administration of iron without looking into the underlying causes of why that could have happened. So we have taken out the physician from this equation, and we have become a target-driven management team. That's what is the problem, is that you remove the physician and the patient from the equation of a target, and suddenly you have a conundrum which precipitates the MedCat and REMS and the FDA and all these things happening. That's where the money comes in and it, it fouls up the whole relationship between the physician and the patient. CMS, August, September last year, issued the proposed rule for uh, you know, ESRD. Uh, there were several key areas of discussion and of interest to the renal community embedded there. It's obviously going to be the first significant change to reimbursement in this area in, in about 30 years. So you have that proposed rule. You see that CMS uh, recently convened a clinical and data technical expert panel. They they convened this uh, MedCAC meeting. Dr. Agarwal, in your opinion, where do you think this is all sort of heading? Or, or can you even take a guess of where it's all heading? Yes, so I was part of the clinical technical expert panel. So I chaired a session on the fluid weight management. And I heard all the presentations at the CTEP in Baltimore middle of last month. My impression is that since the move is away from prescribing a drug to the provision of care, my impression is that the patients might benefit from this whole procedure paradoxically. Why? Because now we are not going to be pushing an expensive medication like erythroportin just to meet a target. We're probably going to do everything to make the patient healthier so he shows up for dialysis. He has he has a requirement for lower erythropoietin dose, in which case uh, the dialysis uh, unit benefits, the patient benefits, and Medicare ultimately benefits. So it's a three-way victory by moving away from this arcane system where you were being paid for very, very high doses of this expensive drug versus going to a more performance-based management of patients. My feeling is that we will gravitate towards more what we see in Europe and Canada and UK, where the erythroportin doses are a fraction of what we use in United States, yet the hemoglobin levels are pretty good. And we might have actually better outcomes uh, over time. Uh, that's my sense. Kathy, do you think people with kidney disease, their family members or loved ones, really understand or appreciate what is potentially going to happen in this whole area once CMS uh, releases a, a final rule or an interim final rule uh, sometime soon? I think most folks, until it comes down to concrete changes in their care, I think as hard as we work to educate patients about this issue so that they could be part of the comment process, uh, it's um, it's a complicated issue. It's sometimes tough to get the information out to patients and their family members. So on the front end of it, I think it's harder for people to understand and be part of that 
process. I, I think, you know, even looking at the, the things that we think are important within the pr- proposed rule, patients understand very clear changes, co-pays, um, oral drugs, labs, home hemodialysis training. Those are things that are very tangible. I think other things are, are tougher, too, for them to wrap their head around, or sometimes they don't see it, even though they may be very impactful on their care as they're changed. So uh, my hope is that more and more patients will become more involved and more informed, but it's tough. Yeah, it is tough, and, and I think, Kathy, what you just said just further emphasizes the importance of what Dr. Agarwal, you know, one of the main points in his paper is the relationship and the communication between a physician and his patient. Absolutely. Or her patient. So, Kathy, any last words for us here as we close out on this uh, podcast? Uh, well, that's, thank you. Closing uh, remarks? I, I guess I would say going to the MedCAC hearing, I fully well understand the importance of studies and safety, but patients live their lives, and the real impact of anemia management on a patient's life and their ability to live a fully meaningful and active life. I think I think that's the most effective measure. Unfortunately, sometimes it's hard to quantify in ways that uh, you can get down on paper. So it's important to have these conversations, and I'm very grateful for the opportunity to be here today. Dr. Agarwald, I'll give you the same opportunity. Any last thoughts? I would like to applaud the efforts of uh, patients like Kathy. And I would like to acknowledge, just read my acknowledgement in the uh, article that I have uh, written. I, I say that this article is dedicated to the indomitable spirit of the thousands of dialysis patients who live with anemia and patiently wait for kidney transplantation. May their voices be heard in the anemia debate. I really hope that we as physicians start listening to our patients. Well, thank you very much, and Dr. Agarwal, that those were great words, and I hope that a lot of our members at ASN and the physicians in general will read your article that's going to be in CJSON and highlighting you know, some of the important things we talked about today. So I want to thank both of you for joining us, and I really appreciated the time. Thank you for a great discussion. Thank you. Thank you. ASN Kidney News is a publication of the American Society of Nephrology. The ideas and opinions expressed by participants in ASN Kidney News podcasts are their own and do not necessarily reflect the positions of the society. To lead the fight against kidney disease, ASN helps its 11,000 members provide high-quality care to patients, conduct cutting-edge research, and educate the next generations of kidney care professionals. To learn more about ASN or Kidney News, please visit the Society's website at asn-online.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the American Society of Nephrology.